Grief is something that has visited you. I have forgiven the doctor who postponed my wife's heart operation, which ended up her dying in my arms. Try to listen, because we all judge. It's built into our humanity. The Human Library is a place where you could borrow someone who could help you challenge what you think you know. What's really powerful about the Human Library is that... Welcome to the Being Human podcast with Amelia Vegting and Jez Francis. Brought to you by Just Add Water. Hello, I'm Jez Francis. And I'm Amelia Vegting. And welcome to the Being Human podcast, where with special guests, we explore what it means to be human in this world we find ourselves living in. Jez, can you believe it? This is episode number 12. A full year. (laughs) I know. And people are still listening. (laughs) It must be down to our amazing guests, Amelia. Yes, our guests have been absolutely brilliant. But I also think that our wonderful, boring stories must have attracted and perhaps retained some listeners. Do you think so? Mm. Shall we kick straight off? into this episode then with Boring Things About Me. Boring Things About Me. The wonderful part of the podcast where we celebrate the mundane, the boring and the downright dull things that we experience as part of being human. Jez, what have you got in store for us this week? My mother and I were driving down to Exeter last weekend and I had five hours in the car with her so we talked about a lot of things. (laughs) school, family, my kids. Mm. We started reminiscing about my school experiences. And mum asked me how Simon was. So Simon was an old school friend of mine and we were thick as thieves sort of from age 12 to maybe about 17. Nice. You know, I'd regularly be around his house, him around our place. We were just really good friends. And then our lives sort of went in different directions. I went to one university, he went to another and we lost touch basically. Mm. And I worked out that I've seen him once in the last 30 years at a school reunion about 15 oh, wow. years ago. Anyway, so I was thinking about Simon. And then on Monday morning, I come into the office and there's an email from him. Weird. <clears throat> and so that manifested itself in a conversation. Do you want to know what he was thinking about? Yes. So this is probably his memory of you when you were, what, back at school? Yeah, I would have been 16 or 17 at the time. <laughs> so anyway, so he emails me as a bit of formal, how are you, kind of, you know, what's been happening, what have you. Yeah. And then he says, um, it's been ages and I often think of you and our school days. Just this morning, we were talking about school trips and I recounted to my wife the time on the ski trip in Schruns in Austria when you received your prize, your medal at the end of the week for, oh, for nice. skiing or what have you. Then grab your crotch and scream something very rude and had your prize promptly taken away from you. They were simple times, but they were good times. I'm not sure that, again, I'm not sure this story paints me in a particularly good light. But, but for the listeners, I let's remember. things have changed. But... Remember, let's try to remember I was just 16 or 17 years old. But there we are, the power of thinking and connecting and manifestation. Yeah, I like but that a lot. That's my boring story from this week. Tell me yours. Um, I have got involved with trying to change my phone provider. So I begin the process of leaving Vodafone, which involves requesting my pack code. Turns out, compared to usually, I was being prepared to wait for a 20 hours, t- hours yeah. on yeah. hold. They picked up straight away. When you're requesting information to leave the provider, suddenly you go up the urgency list. Yeah. So anyway, I'm on the phone for them for about the next 20 minutes, chatting through as the caller's trying to pro- provide me with a much better deal than what I found elsewhere. So they can't. So I'm said, you know what, I am going to leave. Thanks for all the information I now have. Conversation done. 
So you think, next day, I have two missed calls from the same number, didn't recognise it, but they called again. So on the third time I answered, and shock, it was Vodafone, again trying to work out this better deal that they could find for me. We again come to the same conclusion. I'm really sorry, I am going to go. You can't match this one. Think the process is done. You know, we move on. The next day, I get another call, and it is the exact same guy. And I said to him, I was like, look... We spoke yesterday. <laughs> We've been here before. We've been here before. I'm not going to sit and wait for another 20 minutes while you try and find me a better deal. So no, this is officially officially it. And he told me he was very sorry to see me go, but that is the situation that we're at. So yes, four calls later, chat boxes, pack codes, all the rest of it. I'm now ready and prepared to go. But I think there's probably many people that have been through that painful, yes. painful phone contract. Isn't it interesting how valuable existing customers are to them, yeah. but they only express that at the point, at when, the you're point a, when you're, when you're about to go. Yeah, see yeah. ya. I'm really looking forward to our guest for today's episode, Jez. And I actually think this subject and conversation that um, we're going to have being that this is the episode that's released in December, is is really fitting. That's a good point, actually. So whilst the holiday season is a particularly exciting time of year for many people with the lights coming on and the presents and spending time with family and loved ones and so on, it mm. isn't that way for everyone. And sometimes when you're wrapped up... Oh, um, pardon the pun? Oh, very good, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can get wrapped up in your own world and it is easy to forget what life can be like for others. Yeah, and our guest, I think, is going to talk to this point just brilliantly. So, Ronnie Abigail is joining us today. He's the founder of the Human Library Organisation, where instead of books, real people with real stories are on loan to readers. So this concept creates a safe space for open dialogue and gives people the opportunity to unjudge others, as Ronnie describes it. At Just Add Water, we first met Ronnie on some work we were doing with one of our corporate clients, helping them create a culture of belonging. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Ronnie to the Being Human podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Before we get going into all things you and the Human Library, we just wanted to ask you a couple of questions to get to know who you are a little bit more and what makes you tick, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, if you could be someone else for the day, who would that be and why? Wow. Really, I think I'd like to be somebody very controversial, somebody that I have a lot of bias and potentially prejudice about where I don't understand why, you know, I have so many questions. So, mm. for example, the uh, Mr. Wilders, who won the election in the Netherlands yesterday, who is a sharp right politician, yeah. maybe even Donald Trump for a day, just to get inside his head and figure out, you know, <laughs> what, what makes him tick. Because, yeah. you know, I think there are some people, unfortunately, they talk into a polarizing agenda where I'm much more for let's try and find common ground and agree to disagree on the things we don't agree on. So I'm, I'm drawn to understand the people that are part of that polarization. So I'd, I'd want to be inside one of them. So probably my best bet be Trump. Yeah. Ronnie, do you have any special talents that people might be surprised to know? Oh, well, some of my dates have been surprised of my cooking skills. <laughs> In a good or a bad way? Yeah. <laughs> in a good way, because they probably, when they see me on the surface, I might not look like I'm that interested in food, but I am. But I think my 
best skill that people are surprised that I have is my ability to be vulnerable because I grew up in a tough place and, uh, and some might say that I had a challenging journey getting to where I am, but I'm still in, uh, in great touch with my uh, emotions and uh, I'm able to catch myself if I do something that's not smart or stupid or that I, I realize it's wrong, I'm able to admit my mistakes. I think that's probably my best quality. I'm curious. I mean, we're going to get into this later on, but do you find that your honesty and your um, openness catches people off guard if they've not met you before or they don't know who you are and where you're coming from? Absolutely. And it makes some people even uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, and I don't intend to, but it's just I'm not... I'm not like, this sounds wrong. How can I say this in a good way? I was born and raised in Denmark, but mixed parents. So I have a bit of a Middle Eastern temper or passion inside me from my dad. And then I have my mom's reasoning and, uh, you know, Scandinavian chill. (laughs) (laughs) Take it easy. Think about it first and then act. Where in the Mediterranean, you're acting on your emotions. You're passionate about the whole thing. So I'm trying to find that. Scandinavian Middle Eastern balance. It's not always easy. And so sometimes you clash with, especially with the Danes, because they don't have the same, uh, at least many of the people that react to me with a little apprehension, social apprehension. I think it's because it's, it's a little overwhelming. It's a little surprising that I'm prepared to speak about maybe even quite personal or even tragic events of my life. Like uh, we may touch upon that later, mm. but that's, this uh i've always been very open and my mom sometimes when i was a child she would say to me you can't say that or shh or even under the table like give me a little nod on the leg to tell me that this is not a conversation to pursue with these dinner guests but Mm. that's me maybe i'm lacking a filter or maybe i'm just like why can't we talk about that i don't understand what's the problem it's living in a culture where there are many conversations that you're not expected to have but we need to have them yeah and that's kind of I wouldn't give in to that suppression so I just kept being myself <laughs> brilliant and kept doing it and that means certain people navigate around me and that's okay Ronnie do you have a book or a film that you've watched or read that has had a profound impact on your life yes there, there's been several I think but in my youth there was a French film called La Haine, oh yes which translates to the hate Uh, which made a profound impact on me and helped me better understand the social tension I was experiencing in my own life back in the early 90s when I was a very young man. Mm. Uh, There are some social things that were comparative between France and Denmark and minorities and uh, some of the institutionalized discrimination that you run into when you grow up with a mixed background. Or Mm. Many of my friends were either Arabic or Pakistani or Turkey because I grew up in the most diverse neighborhood. So I I guess the whole world was living in my neighborhood, and it's probably helped shape my journey in what I'm doing today, I think. Do you have a mantra you like to live by, Ronnie? I don't know if it's a mantra, but I'm just, it's really what I'm promoting is, if I do something that's not, you know, doesn't sit well with you, or for some reason, I'd like another chance, you know? Mm. And I just, what I really, my mantra is try to give people the same chances that you would want them to give you. So be, be as merciful towards others and their mistakes or harm towards you as, as you would want them to be if it was the other way around. And that's also why I have forgiven the doctor who 
postponed my wife's heart operation, which ended up her dying in my arms when her heart valve collapsed. Oh, oh wow. Mm. So I've, I've forgiven him, you know, and, and I would want others to forgive me. Uh, so I'm just, and I'm not religious. I just think it's, it's humanity. It's being human. Mm. It's, it's, it's within our capacity and capability. And we should offer the same as we expect and we hope for. So powerful. Ronnie, well, let's shift our attention towards, you know, the human library. Could you share with us what the human library is? Well, the human library is uh, similar to your community library. It's a place where you can go and borrow books. Only at this library, the books are real people, flesh and blood, uh, individuals that volunteered because they have a lived experience that can help us, the borrower, the reader, as we like to call them, that can help our readers better understand themselves and the diversity of people in their community. So especially topics that can help us challenge the taboo, the stigmas, the prejudices that we all have. Because at the Human Library, we operate with an assumption that we all judge. And it's not really an assumption. I'm just saying that to be polite in case there are listeners to this podcast that are saying, well, I don't judge. But please try to listen because we all judge. Mm. It's built into our humanity. It's our way of navigating diversity and dangers too. Yeah. Is we have this built-in survival system and it'll print little labels so incredibly fast that you you barely reflect. It's it's in passing, basically. It's a process that's going on, even without you being conscious about it. This mass. Is being done. So let me give you an example. You're walking down the street. There's nothing unusual. Nobody you haven't seen before. You'll just walk down the street and your alarm will not ring because there's nothing there. Now you walk down the same street the next day and now you see 20 Arsenal fans, loud, drunk, and rowdy. And I don't know why I said Arsenal. I like Arsenal. But just because your brain would then tell you, wait a minute, here are 20 football fans. Football, okay, sometimes football can get rowdy. We know this. We have a reference for football. Sometimes football fans can get rowdy. So before you know it, your brain might recommend you to go to the other side of the street and not walk through those 20 or 30 Arsenal fans that are singing, drinking beer, and being very loud on the street, on the path, you know, the pedestrian walkway in front of you. Mm. And that's your survival instinct that's just recommending you to do the safe thing. You're not saying the 20 fans are dangerous, but you don't know. And since you don't know, you'd rather be safe than Mm. sorry. You're going to cross the street. Maybe somebody walks up to you on the street and they ask you a question and their background or appearance is so different that you're just, whoa, you're a little bit socially apprehensive. You're a little bit insecure or fearful. So the library is a place where you could borrow someone who could help you challenge what you think you know. It could be about mental health, ethnicity, orientation, gender, social status, anything that could help us better understand where you're coming from and why you live the way you do or look the way you do or believe in what you believe in. 
Talk me through practically what happens. How do I actually physically sort of walk up to a desk and borrow somebody? Well, you can join us online in the virtual space, or you can join us in person, like you mentioned, on different locations. We're active in more than 80 countries. We go to colleges, high schools, public libraries, universities, festivals, and workplaces. So if we're in a place and you're there, you could walk up to the desk. It's manned by librarians, and there will be a book board there illustrating all the topics on loan. So that could be, just for example, uh, schizophrenia, autism, transgender, a person with disability, someone with a different ethnic or religious background, somebody who's an immigrant or refugee with a social status, unemployed or unhoused. So you'd have a variety or a diversity of content to choose from. Librarian will then guide you to find the book that's most relevant for you and also prepare you to become a reader and explain the rules, you mm. know, like bring the book back on time, don't tear out pages, don't take it home, treat it, you know, bring it back in the same condition as it was given to you and treat it with the same respect that you would like to be treated with. Mm. And then you have half an hour, you sit somewhere in the space. We've set up a reading area, as we call it, with little pods. You could do one-on-one. -on -one. You could share with a coworker, with a friend, or with bring your children. It's if it's a family event, thirty minutes. Ask any question you want about HIV, uh, surviving suicide, about domestic abuse. We have this digital bookshelf where you can read on demand. So every day books are publishing, and then you join at a time that suits you and a topic that you're interested in. So that's our newest edition. And so two days ago, I was reading a book about facial disfigurement. And it was a woman in the United States who was an open book about her life with this facial disfigurement. Turns out half of her face had grown faster than the other half. And so when she was born, she had this very rare mm. uh, diagnosis. 300 people around the world is, is all. That are, and I can't even tell you the name of the illness, but I can tell you it made a profound impact to meet this person, even if it was virtual, and learn about her journey and having to always meet the stares, mm. meet the looks, and how she explained that children would be very open and frank and say, hey, what's happened to your face? And adults would never address the elephant in the room. Mm. <laughs> we can all learn so much about ourselves and about the way we sometimes we think we're polite. We think we're showing consideration, but in truth, we're doing the exact opposite. We're pretending like it's not there. And the same thing happened to me uh, when I lost my wife. When I started going out, people would never initiate that conversation. They would always wait for me because like they said, when I asked them, I said, how come you, you didn't ask about no, I wanted to wait to see if you were ready to talk about it. So it's really being very considerate. But it also makes you, who's standing there with the apparent situation at hand, whether it's a face that's very different that everybody's staring at, or whether it's the fact that everybody knows that socially I'm under duress because I'm in grief. I lost my wife recently, suddenly shockingly you know so it was a shock for them it's a shock for me and then they say nothing like nothing happened mm. and that was damaging to me emotionally because i'm like how come the 
people closest to me don't say anything about what's happened. Mm. So sometimes the human thing to do is really be vulnerable and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend. You know, if you don't want to talk about it, I fully understand. But I got to ask you because, you know, your face is very different than what I've seen. And, and she would say, yeah, there's only 300 people in the world that has a face like mine. And then, you know, we could start talking about it. Ronnie, as we talk about reading, perhaps we could read you as a, a person a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit more, you know, about your story and, you know, your childhood, life growing up? I grew up here in Copenhagen, mixed parents. One of the questions I got a lot back in the late 70s, early 80s, people hadn't seen people like me a lot before. Everybody here was blonde, blue-eyed, or in that variation. So the Danes were still a very homogenous population. People would ask me, where are you from? I said, what do you mean? Well, you have dark hair and brown eyes. I said, yeah, I do. You're right. Good observation. Well, I'm from Copenhagen. Where are you from? And that would be my standard answer because I would be irritated. It was it was a like a social pressure to have to legitimize what am I doing here? Like you don't asking me where I'm from is the same as asking or saying you're a little bit out of place here. What are you doing here? Yeah. You don't seem like you belong here. And that's how I perceived it in my youth. I realized I need to go out and see what else is out there. And so already at 15, I went to the States for a year as an exchange student to sort of come out and also become more independent, you know, stand on my own feet a little bit. And I stayed with a wonderful family in Connecticut, the Morsi family, uh, who are still my family today. Mm -hmm. uh, we're still in touch. And it's been wonderful. And it helped shape me to be a more uh, understanding and, I guess, empathetic person. Because being one year abroad really forces you also to be open to the world. I came back and I was so inspired. And uh, then my friend was stabbed while I was in business college. He was stabbed in the Copenhagen nightlife. And uh, me and some other friends decided we're going to have to respond to this. We're going to have to do something because it's just not all right. He was fortunate to survive the assault, but it was a very serious attack. And for no apparent reason, I mean, two strangers jumping a guy and stabbing him. And, you know, there was no reason leading up to it. You know, he was just maybe drunk. Maybe he said something stupid. Okay, he's drunk, you know, uh, but that's no reason to stab him six times and throw him in the bushes like a, a piece of garbage. Oh so that was that was a shock for us when we were only 19. And so we organized the first anti-violence support party here and realized that we're going to need a lot more than a party to stop what's, what's on the horizon. And so we self-organized a peer group uh, initiative called Stop the Violence. So in my early youth, from 19 to 27, I was basically working full-time at a youth organization, a peer group educating young people, campaigning, lecturing, doing all kinds of projects to uh, provide alternatives and alternative responses to violence. And about six years into the work, around 99, we got involved with a big festival in Denmark called Roskiller Festival, which is one of the biggest and most impressive music and culture uh, extravaganzas mm. of the year. So in 99, the festival invited us to contribute and it went really well. And the year after then, in the fall of 99, after the summer festival, they came back and said, you guys did a great job. We'd love to do something next year. 
And I said to the others, I think this is what we need to do. And they said, what? I said, we need to put seemingly unpopular people on loan. We need to humanize them. We need to give them an opportunity to explain who they are so that we have a chance to understand their point of view. We've already judged them because they're police or they're sex workers or they're bodybuilders or they're immigrants or they're Muslim or they're Jewish or they're Buddhist or whatever they are. So we've already judged them. So the question is, where can we go and challenge that judgment? Mm. So we could build like a library. And, uh, you know, and my one of the other team members said, so you mean like a human library? I said, yeah, exactly. That's what we need to do. Brilliant. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that grief is something that has visited you. Can I ask you about that? Absolutely. No, I don't mind at all. See, um, I've asked people around the world to publish as open books on their lived experience. And obviously, I myself have also been an open book. I did something in the early years, 2002, 2003, but the more profound work happened after I lost my wife uh, on May 6th in 2013. Unfortunately, Zoe passed away from a heart valve collapse uh, during a holiday in Spain. And me and her were sitting on the balcony in the evening talking, and our children were sleeping. We have two kids, a boy and a girl. At the time, the boy was two and the girl was six. And uh, and she just she said, I'm getting the thing with my heart now, she said, which could be these attacks where her heartbeat might skip a beat or also go into double pace for a while and then come back to normal pace. And, and so we were familiar with her heart condition and she was scheduled to have a new valve. But unfortunately, the doctors decided to postpone the operation from May till October, which I also try to object. But uh but it so would happen that the heart valve collapsed on May 6th. And so she passed away at the age of 37. It was a shock. It was the worst thing. I have no words to describe except to say that that, that I wouldn't want this on my worst enemy. Mm. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through this. And I know they will. There's nothing I can do to stop that. But I could try and share my experience. And I think uh, many people be surprised because death is something that awaits all of us. Mm. But we don't really like to talk about it. And that's fully understandable because it's not pleasant. Yeah, it's not a pleasant thing to talk about. It's not pleasant to think about. And I'm quite sure it's not pleasant to be in, to die. Not necessarily a pleasant thing. It can be peaceful passing, but I'm sure that the end of life itself is not necessarily a joyful moment, especially not when it comes at an unwanted time. Mm. I think circumstance is so important when we talk about end of life. And at 37 and a mother of two in the middle of everything is not the time. So giant shock. We were not 85 or 92 and everybody could expect that one day that could happen. Yeah. Because that's where we are in our life journey. So so your, your surroundings don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. And you've never been there before. So you don't know what to say either. But the whole obligation, grief becomes a, a part of your life that you have to, I mean, I lost 17 kilos in 17 weeks. I didn't eat. I, had, I went to therapy. I had, it, it was a terrible two years. And when I started socializing again, even though some distance from ground zero, people didn't know what to say or would not say anything like I mentioned earlier. And it was quite the, debilitating for me because I felt like it became my social burden to make sure that you two felt comfortable with me being there. Yeah. 
say we had a party and uh, and I'm coming over and if I go out to a party after what happened to me, then I'm going out to try and have some fun, you know. I'm not going out to be sad or to be crying or to be in a bad place. I'm going out to try and be in a good place. So you know that what happened to me and then you don't want to take me from my good place and so you don't ask any question, but you didn't see me since it happened. And so somehow I'm there expecting you to say something and to recognize me, recognize what's happened since last I saw you. And you're cautious socially because you don't want to step on my sore. You know, you're trying to be a friend, mm. but it creates really harmful situations with these misunderstandings. So I would recommend anybody to try and think about grief is something we're going to feel the rest of our life mm. from the moment you lose until your life ends. Grief will be a companion. You're going to need to find a way to cope with it, learn to live with it, and learn to deal with it. And some days might be great. Some days might be really crappy. And it's the way it is. It's being human. Surrender to it. Go through it. There are many natural stages and phases that you have to go through. And time is your best friend. But please, if you meet somebody in grief, please don't be silent. Offer yourself. Mm to that person and say, hey, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I want you to know that if you do, I very much am here and I'd love to talk to you. Ronnie, have you got a, a favorite powerful or transformational story that you could share with us from the Human Library, which really has demonstrated the impact of having these conversations and that in turn breaking down prejudice. Absolutely. Uh, but I got to supplement you with two things. One is we're not here to break down any prejudice. We're not here to fight stigma or stereotypes. In fact, we're a library. We're not a combat organization mm. of any sort. We won't even lobby you because we're very neutral space. We're going to let you come in and you choose because obviously as a library, we remain completely neutral. We will also publish people that have opinions or lifestyles that are quite controversial. Yeah. And where you might think, wait a minute, why is a member of the National Rifle Association on the Human Library bookshelf? Mm. Or why is somebody who openly says, I vote for Trump twice? Why are they on the bookshelf? I don't understand. Or... Uh, somebody who is, uh, there are ethical boundaries to the concept, but we want to give a voice also to the people we disagree with. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then the second part is about the favorite. I don't have any favorites <laughs> because I think they're all equally important. There are global topics that we share in common, yeah. global questions about our humanity that we have in common across all seven continents. Doesn't matter who you are. You want to know answers about these things. And one of the very strong topics are mental health. Mm. And so one of my non-favorite examples relate to mental health. But this woman came to us. She was 140 kilos. She was fully medicated with schizophrenia and became a book in the human library. Four years later, she was less 60 kilos. She was off the meds. And she was working as a full-time recovery mentor, first job she'd had in many, many years. When she gave her farewell speech as a book, she said, without the library, this journey of hers would have never happened. 
Today she is a mom. She's married with a beautiful child. Things that seemed impossible in 2014 when she started as a book with us. So that personal journeys have made a profound impact on me, made me understand how important this space is for that self-cathartic journey, that part of it that's so cathartic for our books. And then for readers, I've seen people come in, well, with many different agendas. But there's also been, you know, incredibly profound experiences with a a family, a, a man and his wife coming in saying they drove 40 miles because they heard on the radio that our victim of incest was going to be published today. And they wanted to borrow her to ask her advice. And when she came back from the loan, she didn't share the, the details that she can't share, but she did share that what they had happened to them was their, their daughter had been abused by the wife's little brother, the mother's little brother. The daughter was only 13 when she was abused. And this was now 14 years later. Since then, she had developed an eating disorder and many other, uh, say, consequences of the abuse had surfaced uh, in their life. And they didn't understand what it was until at 27, they found out that it was a little brother. And so they needed advice. What can we do now? How can we support our child? How can, what do we do as a family? Can we call the police? We live in a small community. What about the stigma for her? What about the burden on the family? And so, and I was, I was just, I was pushed back. I was set back. I was uh, humbled. And I realized that, you know, the idea of the library is great, but what you want to use it for, who am I to say? Mm. So if you need a good piece of advice from somebody who had maybe an experience similar to yours, one that's rarely accessible and not easy to talk about in the open without an invitation, then that's also part of our purpose, Mm. you know, connecting people. You discover your daughter is developing an eating disorder. Come to the human library, borrow some of the young people we have that have found ways to cope with these challenges they're facing and get some inspiration maybe. There is no universal truth, but there is the, the, the chance to mirror in each other and learn from each other. And it's quite valuable for those people who paid the price, who paid the price for that learning, that they can pass that on to you. What advice do you have for anyone, Ronnie, just looking to be more open to others? I appreciate that question, Jeremy, because it's it's actually the most important part of this podcast, probably, that we reach now. Uh, because we can all do something. And what I did is, you know, I'd love to lay that out as an example. I don't know if it's the path forward for everybody else, but I'm happy to share what what I did. Is I realized that I'm a very judgmental person. And I took responsibility for it. I sat down and I looked at it and I said, why am I having this reaction? I I just realized I make a lot of quick assumptions, a lot of quick uh, judgments, and I think we all do. And it's not to be ashamed of. We try to hide it, and that's probably smart in that sense. You don't want to burst out, walk around thinking about people, but we need to be aware of it. And we need to take responsibility for it because it actually cuts us off from opportunities. Mm. We put people in quick boxes and navigate around them That's people that won't be in your network now, isn't it? That's neighbors who won't be a resource next time you're missing a cup of milk or a cup of sugar 
for the cake you're baking. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, co-workers who won't step up and help and support the moment you might need a hand uh, because they don't know you. You don't have a relation with them. And I was quick to decide who I wanted to have relations with and who I didn't want to have relations with. And I cut myself off. So I needed the human library space for myself. I didn't just build this for everybody else. I built it for me too. Mm. And, and so I'd love to go first, raise my hand and admit the fact that I judge. And I think if we all find the courage to do the same and say, hey, wait a minute, he's right. Actually, there are people I judge. It could be Tories. It could be labor. It could be Brexit people. We all have groups that we have passed judgment on. So I say, start by asking yourself, where is it that the shoe seems a little tight for you, mm. my friend, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and then go, go to the library with courage and honesty and say, hey, I'm afraid of schizophrenia. I think people that are schizophrenic are dangerous, potentially dangerous. And when I hear a friend has been admitted to the hospital with this, uh, then I distance myself because I'm afraid. Ronnie, if you had a magic button for the human library that you could press and all dreams that you have for the human library came true, what would that look like? That would look like serious funding so I could scale this to 190 plus countries, mm. meet readers in their own language with books from their own community, whether it be outreach programs, community programs in person, going into educational institutions or, or reaching people virtually. So that button I would push would be the funding that would enable us to, to truly be reach everywhere. everybody. Yes, yeah. yes. So if you know anybody with a big wallet, <laughs> send them to humanlibrary.org. <laughs> <laughs> Amelia and I have both been to the Human Library and read a couple of books each, so we can wholeheartedly recommend the experience. Ronnie, a huge thank you for taking the time today to talk to us about both the Human Library and your own lived experience as well on the Being Human podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Ronnie. It's my pleasure. It's been great to chat. So from experiencing a human library um, reading and now having had the opportunity to speak to Ronnie himself, I am just absolutely staggered at the work that they do at the human library. I think it's the very practical what can I do differently part that leaps out at me. Uh, and probably because I feel guilty, I do judge people. Uh, I try really hard not to, but I find it difficult. You know, I, I do find myself metaphorically crossing the road on occasion, but I am more aware of it. And uh, when I catch myself thinking in this way, I do try and explore, you know, what are the reasons why I'm feeling this or feeling this way. So talking to Ronnie has again reminded me that this is a, a mental discipline that I want to continue to work on. What about you, Amelia? What did you think? I, I think for me, a real personal takeaway um, has been listening to Ronnie talk about his experience of grief. Um, I'm in the very fortunate position that I've never lost someone you know, in my immediate close family or friends. And so from a personal perspective, I don't know what a real experience of grief is like. Mm. And actually having had Ronnie open up, I am, first of all, going to be better equipped at talking to somebody who has experienced grief and know better what to say and what perhaps not to say. And secondly, I think in a way it's kind of prepared me for what might come. Mm. So I think that's a real personal takeaway for me. And I just think what's really powerful about the Human Library is that there is such benefit for both 
you know, the books themselves who are being open and sharing as well as the readers who are learning from that. It's a complete full circle of helpful, insightful conversations. So, yeah, I just think it, it's brilliant. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Being Human podcast and indeed this first series as yeah. well. It's been brilliant. We've had 12 amazing guests. If you've enjoyed this episode and the series, please do hit the follow button and leave us a review on whichever platform you use. And also we will be continuing next year. So if you've got any suggestions on topics you'd like us to explore or you'd like to be a guest or talk to us about some of the work we do at Just Add Water, please do get in touch. We would absolutely love to hear from you. You've been listening to the Being Human podcast brought to you by just add water nurturing individual brilliance forging collective strength i said jez francis a little bit strangely at the start of that very loud as well that was did it catch you out that was yeah eardrums went going amelia what about you (laughs) this is the jazz show I now am overthinking it. Yeah. Am I overthinking it or not? Are you getting a parking ticket today, do you think? Oh, no, Amelia, I'd virtually banish that worry. Okay. <laughs> Amelia and I have both parked in the station car. Oh, no, no, no. no, no. <laughs>